0: Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day.
1: Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking with uh, Dr. Christopher Ryan. This is a very special edition. I'm here with uh, Dr. Charles Grobe, pronouncing that correctly, right? Sometimes I want to say Grob, but it's no, Grobe. It's
2: definitely Grobe.
1: It's definitely Grobe. Um, I, I don't even really. I, I on the drive down here, I was thinking of uh, how I was going to introduce the work you do, but I think I'll just let you introduce the work uh, sure. that you're doing now because. I would uh, probably embarrass you with the superlatives. Yeah,
2: sure. So, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. And uh, the most, and I've been interested in studying psychedelic compounds uh, for many years. And over the last 20 years, I've had the opportunity at Harbor to conduct studies with MDMA uh, in the early 90s. We did the first. uh, phase 1 FDA-approved study in normal volunteers, essentially a safety study. Uh, I also did uh, research in the Brazilian Amazon uh, on the on the plant decoction ayahuasca in uh, the early 90s with my colleagues Dennis McKenna and Jace Calloway. And then in the early 2000s, I was invited back to conduct a study assessing the... Uh, psychological health of adolescents who participated with their parents in sanctioned uh, religious ceremonies of the UDV, Unida de Vegetal, in Brazil. And this was, uh, you know, approved by, by Brazilian law. Right, there did,
1: are two churches in Brazil well, who are... two
2: primary churches, uh-huh. the UDV, which I studied, and then the Santo Daime, which is actually a much larger uh, operation, but I had not worked with them. Right. Uh, my work was specifically with the UDV. We we studied adult members, long term members who had consumed ayahuasca in uh, ritual context within their religion uh, at least twice monthly for at least ten years. Studied them, found them to be an excellent psychological health and found that many of them had gone through profound transformations in their lives some of them had led very dissolute lives earlier on problems with alcohol abuse substance abuse problems with the law problems with uh, establishing stable relatedness stable relationship and following their uh, entry into the Udv and their participation in these group ritual ayahuasca cere- religious ceremonies they, um, they entirely ceased their alcohol and drug use. They established much uh, healthier mood regulation. Their relationships became much healthier and more stable. And they essentially became far more successful out, of, out in the world. Um, and these, these were adolescents? No, these were adults. Adults, these were adults. okay. In but who had been for yeah, we, 10 years, was it? At least 10-year membership in right. the UDV. Right. And then in, in around 2000, 2001, we were invited by the Brazilian judiciary to come back and do a study of the adolescents uh, okay. who participated with their families. Now, ayahuasca had been legalized in Brazil for religious use since 1987, but there was some concern about health and Safety among the uh, teenagers who participated, and in the with the, at least with the UDV, uh, mothers uh, uh, generally consume ayahuasca in ceremony uh, during pregnancy. Sometimes they, I've, I was told, they take a small amount of ayahuasca during childbirth babies are baptized with an eyedropper really? full. I've attended those wow. ceremonies. And then generally, the children are not again exposed to ayahuasca until they hit puberty, at which point they they have the uh, option, if they choose, to accompany their parents and attend uh, Ritual sessions
1: like not. wine with an Italian family, right? Exactly. <laughs> Supervised. Now, let's for for listeners who may not be familiar with all these different substances right. we're talking about. Just to clarify, ayahuasca is also known as yage, yage, yeah,
2: hey. yage,
1: right? Yeah, hey. right. right. Which maybe you want to explain? I know it's, uh, well, it's a mixture a, of two unrelated plants. Right.
2: So um, ayahuasca standard ayahuasca is a uh, decoction of two plants. One is the uh, Banisteriopsis copy, specifically the the woody. Uh, it's a woody vine, and it's the bark. The bark that's macerated and put into uh, the decoction, boiled for many many hours. The other plant are the leaves of the psychotria plant. Right. The psychotria plant contains dimethyltryptamine or DMT. Uh, DMT uh. when um, taken orally uh, is essentially nothing happens it 's extremely active and potent if it were to be smoked or injected. but uh, when taken orally, nothing happens because an enzyme system in the gastrointestinal tract, the monoamine oxidized system uh, inactivates the mm-hmm. DMT. Uh, So drinking a DMT-containing plant uh, generally yields no change. However, if you brew the DMT-containing plant, the, the leaves of the psychotria plant, with the banisteriopsis the mm-hmm. bark which contains harmala alkaloids harmine harmaline and tetrahydroharmine which have an inhibiting action
1: MAO uh, inhibitor
2: Monoamine oxidase inhibiting it inhibits the enzyme system that normatively would break down and deactivate the DMT
1: How common is do you know how common are plants with an MAO inhibitor in other well, words, I'm trying to get yeah. a handle on how unlikely is it, given the, right. the number right. of different right. plants in the Amazon jungle. Right.
2: No, it, they're pretty unusual. I mean, yeah. there are some other plants, like um, I, I believe the uh, Mimosa hostilis has some MAOI activity, but g- even um, passion flower has mild, right. very mild activity. But uh, the badisterops is quite unique in in regards to the quantity of the uh, mali uh, acting alkaloids. Right. So you know how how did the native peoples? Because <laughs> it's that's been known question, to the native yeah. peoples for millennia. Right. And um, y- you know what I was told by the uh, UDV members was that hey, you know within their church it was. Uh, divine intercession right and if you talk i think with native peoples or members of the other modern ayahuasca churches again you'll hear a story about some kind of uh uh divine message being divined by someone of great revealed calendar, right? Yeah. revelation yeah. now uh, that's been a little hard for me to accept at, at face value but as a western reductionistic scientist in the way I conceptualize it is that over many centuries, uh, tribal peoples would have tested all the plant life in in the particular region and found that a particular combination might yield very unusual effects. So you it.
1: think they just had a, I trial and error? it was just error. trial and error. They Let's came across a a of
2: this, a that. that would uh-huh. amplify the uh, certain effects of other plants.
1: Ah, so and they got they, a little tinge of something, and then found that this act. Y- right, and then yeah. perhaps
2: they threw in some psychotria, and and found that boy, uh-huh. they 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 got what, they got a very very powerful experience, which they then, kind of you know kind of conceptualized within their own belief system and right. their, their own religious systems and mythologies grew out of that
1: what is the the drug that um i can't remember what it's called but i've seen i've seen films where it's like a long thing they and they yeah, blow it up problem. the nose yeah, it's, a, it's a
2: DMT. it's a um <coughs> it, it's like the the powder of a plant containing dmt okay. as some of the remote tribal peoples have they have these uh, long tubes right one person will get on the blowing end and on command he'll just blow really hard and the other person has the other end up one of his nasal passages and he'll just get hit with a bullet. <laughs> that bolus. does
1: not look pleasant.
2: It doesn't look pleasant and, uh, you know, concern I would have might be infection it might yeah. be just blowing a hole through your nasal septum. <laughs> I would yeah. not advise it, but the native yeah. peoples seem to have worked it out <laughs> in as safe a manner as, as perhaps possible. So
1: that's in the Amazon as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. So I I, I, I know we're going to run out of time with you because i could probably talk to you for six hours without uh running dry on questions for sure so just to get a little background before i turned on the tape recorder we were talking about uh, people we know in common and i mentioned stanley krippner who um people who listen to the podcast have probably heard the episode i it's one of the favorites i get so many emails and tweets saying that you know get that stanley krippner guy back he's fascinating he's 80 years old he's been everywhere knows just about everyone he took LSD with Timothy Leary at Harvard and right. in part of his experiment. Um, and he also you-
2: had a precognitive, I believe it was on LSD, he had a precognitive experience of the uh, Kennedy assessment. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he had another one involving stan groff's mother or something like that i don't remember the details though but i you know when stanley and i've traveled together uh he doesn't drive so i always do the driving and so he'll be telling these amazing stories Mm -hmm. and i'm sitting there going yeah i how can i like not be taking notes here you know i'm driving and i can't take notes um but luckily at least we got to talk for a while um yeah, I mean I've been with Stanley Brazil, Morocco, India, Chile, Argentina, like 15 20 different countries.
2: Uh, I I I've been with uh, Stanley in the, in the country of Brooklyn <laughs> at the Maimonides Medical exactly. Center Dream Research Lab, way or, back when. I this met him was in 772 73 I was employed as a research technician on an NIMH funded uh, dream telepathy research right, study which
1: is still Still cited. The, yeah, still cited. The, the, no, the
2: laboratory no longer exists. No,
1: no. But, <laughs> but it
2: was a fascinating yeah. study, and it, it just so happened that I was introduced to Montague Ullman who was the chairman of psychiatry at uh, at Maimonides. Just at the point in time where they realized they needed to, hi- they had just gotten their funding. They needed to hire someone to stay up all night and 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 run the study and. I had I I you know I knew some people there. And you were a kid, I guess. Well, I I was uh, I was in my early twenties. I had uh, dropped out of college uh, a couple uh-huh. years before. I'd gotten infectious mono, needed to take some time off, uh-huh. traveled around the world, came back, worked in New York City, and uh, actually through my father, I met uh, Montague Ullman, who then introduced me to Chuck Honerton, who introduced me to Stan Kripner, and I got this uh-huh, job right. running the dream dream study all night. Which was essentially we, uh, you know, late at night. I uh, the subject would come in. I would they would get ready for bed. I would hook them up to EEG leads, and then they would go to bed in a bed in a a sensory isolation uh, chamber. And then I had someone else who was designated as the sender right. who would, at a certain point in time, would study uh, the, the contents of, of, of an envelope, which was a picture.
1: Right. This sealed a uh, right. hundred sealed envelopes. They'd well, pick I, them, I on them randomly. Well, I gave six envelopes. They had oh.
2: six sealed envelopes to choose from. Oh, you
1: were on that end as well. You were, yeah, you were I, doing I both did, from-
2: I was the whole thing. I How was only- far
1: away were, were, was the sender from the receiver?
2: Oh, you know, just, just about, um, you know, 50 yards or so in oh, another okay. room. But they, okay. but they were both in locked rooms would have no contact contact. i had not seen the uh uh, the picture so you know i so my job would be to study the eeg in my control room all night and when i saw someone was going through a dream i would then uh, wake them up over the intercom and 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 say uh you know call their name you know christopher Christopher'd say well white guys say tell me what 's going through your mind, uh-huh. and then you tell me your dream right and later we had uh, you know we, we we had some statistical correlations done of the transcripts, and we found that with certain people they had a they had a a, a tremendous talent for this phenomena. We found strong significance for right. um, for there being a real phenomena but But then I had a lot, I was up all night monitoring EEGs, talking to people over the intercom, tape recording dreams, and I would also read. And Stanley had a wonderful library in his office on books and articles, and I think he had everything that had been written up to that point on psychedelic drugs. And I found it fascinating. Now, you know, I had gone to college in the late 60s, I had, you know been aware of what's going on. It was hard to miss what was going on. I had some modest experimentation. Did you go to a
1: a party school?
2: Well, it wasn't a party school. It was a very progressive (laughs) school. I went to Oberlin College in Ohio. Oh, yeah, very. Very progressive and and I was a somewhat adventuresome kid as many uh, you know teenagers might be. I also realized pretty quickly that taking very powerful compounds in the uncontrolled setting of a college dormitory was not wise and mm. I in- entirely ceased taking substances uh, very shortly after I, 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 I had a, some initial experimentations but I developed an interest in the field and there Stanley had this tremendous library so I just read constantly all night and just found it fascinating meanwhile you know i had i had dropped out of college i had been out of college for a couple of years and my father who was a physician had some concerns about what he considered to be my lack of direction (laughs) so he said to me what he said son when you figure out what you want to do with your life i want you to call me i don't care what time of the day or night it is you call me so there i am one night reading this fascinating article about a psychedelic research study and i thought i know exactly what i want to do (laughs) my dad wanted me to call him i'm Uh a good son i call it's three o'clock but whatever i called him up woke him up and i said dad i figure out what i want to do he said "Well, well son what's that i said I want to study psychedelics. They're fascinating. There's so much we could learn about the brain, the mind-brain interface. Uh, There's so much we could learn about mental illness. And there are these remarkable novel treatment models that utilize psychedelics to treat people who otherwise we have no helpful treatment models for. So he thought for a second. and He said, well, son, there might be something to what you say but no one will listen to you unless you get your credentials. So at that point, That's I knew a good dad. I had to go back to school. As yeah. much as I didn't want to go back, I went back, I enrolled in Columbia, did all my pre-med, ended up going to medical school, wow. going into my psychiatric training. I went to child and psychiatric training. And you held training. on to it. I held on, even though by the time I got out of medical school in 79, Psychedelics had disappeared. they yeah. were off the map. They were virtually taboo, yeah. even to talk right. about. It was as if they had never existed and as as as, as if this very very exciting Uh, uh, history of psychiatric research had never occurred but I kinda you know hung in there kept accumulating credentials, stayed in academic programs, uh, worked at um, Johns Hopkins for a while, uh, finished my training there, was on the faculty and then had an opportunity to come out first to the University of California Irvine and then in 1993 I, I arrived at Harbor UCLA and, uh, you know, I was just very fortunate that by the early 90s the time was ripe to renew these studies. They had been shut down in their entirety by the um, early yeah. 70s for 20 years. Nothing had happened. But w- myself and a few colleagues around the country who had similar interests and uh, goals, uh, we were able to get a few studies started. And, And it's
1: rolling pretty well at this point, I mean, compared to 20 years ago. Compared
2: to 20 years ago, um, things are starting to happen. Our most recent study here at Harbor UCLA, we finished it a few years ago. It was published in uh, January 2011 in the Archives of General Psychiatry, was a a FDA-approved study where we treated individuals, adults with advanced cancer who had significant levels of reactive anxiety, existential sure. anxiety? Individuals who knew they were approaching the end of their lives and who were very, very frightened of that fact, of, of the, the, their, the, the the diminished time they had left, yeah. and how that, and even the process of death. So, looking back on the old literature, starting in the late 50s up to the early 70s, people like. Uh, Eric first Eric Cast and then Walt Penke and then Stan Groff, uh, Gary Fisher, Sidney Cohen had done some fascinating work treating terminal cancer patients with either LSD or DPT, a another tryptamine analog, and found remarkably positive effects on their on on, on their psychological status. So we were able to make the case to renew that research. We decided to use psilocybin for you know, a variety of reasons, including um, shorter acting than LSD, we felt somewhat safer, milder, more visual, less likely to induce panic or paranoia, uh, uh, more directable, but perhaps most important of all, uh, psilocybin did not carry the uh, political and cultural baggage ah, right. that LSD did. We want to stay as far away as possible from from LSD given its old reputation and we did get approval, we did conduct our study with 12 subjects with advanced cancer and anxiety and found um, a significant improvements at, at various times in their ang- reported anxiety levels and in their mood regulation and I'll say in their overall quality of life. Uh, and some quality of, of death. Some, uh, uh, one, one would think, 11 yeah. of our 12 subjects have passed away but uh, the uh, the strong consensus from them and from their partners and spouses was that it was a a valuable treatment they had only one active session with psilocybin uh-huh. another session with a uh, a placebo uh, but um uh, even that one psilocybin experience when we assess survivors six months out, uh, we found significant uh, improvements in mood and uh, reduced levels of anxiety. So we felt that study was was a success. Subsequently, two other studies were approved that are now ongoing. One at Johns Hopkins uh, with Roland Griffiths and the other at NYU with Steve Ross. So both of these studies are actively looking for recruits. Our study has been completed. We'd like to uh, initiate a uh, Uh, further investigations in this area, however, we've been uh, hampered by uh, lack of funds, essentially. I think, you know, we established feasibility. You know, it's possible to get approvals from regulatory agencies. Uh, It's possible to conduct these studies maintaining strong safety parameters. What has been very challenging is getting adequate funding. The uh, government Health uh, funding agencies uh, do not fund this kind of research. It's off the map as far as yeah. they're concerned. So we, all of our You're not funding. Not going to get a
1: grant. No, yeah. all of
2: our funding comes from uh, private donors. So and wh-
1: what's a what's a study like this cost for a dozen? To do a dozen. Um,
2: our study was. Uh, Looking back I, you know in the neighborhood of about I believe a hundred and thirty hundred and forty thousand, which was right. how now these studies go actually a bargain i yeah, think uh, yeah so um well, anyone out there. Yes, anyone out there who's got some disposable?
1: <laughs> I, I normally, you know, say you know, hit it, click on our donate page right, and leave a couple going. bucks to support the podcast. Right, right, but in but, this case,
2: right? But we're we're actively looking for yeah. funds, and uh, but also keep in mind. Uh, let me also mention that if uh, individuals think that they or someone they know might be a uh, good candidate to participate in this. Research kind of research investigation know that the NYU and Hopkins uh, research studies are both actively looking for new subjects.
1: Let's say someone's just inherited a bunch of money and they think that helping you research the use of hallucinogens in alleviating the terror of death is a worthwhile thing to do with their money. How would they support you? Would they go through maps? Would they go directly to the hospital? Is they, there... they
2: could contact me. My uh, My email address is grobe that's C-G-R-O-B, at labiomed.org. So that's one avenue. I also work, uh, for this study, I I work closely with the Hefter Research Institute. I might want to check out the Hefter website, www.hefter.org, to get information. It's another way to contact me and to see what some of the other investigators are doing. I've worked with MAPS in the past. uh, When I did my uh, initial MDMA study, we also may be... um, gearing up to do another study with maps uh, with a clinical patient population with uh, with MDMA but that's still not hasn't, hasn't happened yet and I'm reluctant to talk publicly until we get our regulatory sure. approvals in line
1: understandable what do you make of the fact given the incredible benefits that that hallucinogens can have when used properly in the correct setting and with the the right sort of ritualistic, perhaps, uh, guidance, if if not clinical, depending on what the culture is. What do you make of the fact that, to my knowledge, every society on Earth that's had access to hallucinogenic plants has considered them to be the greatest gift of the gods? (sighs) And yet, in American society, due to minimum mandatory sentencing laws, you go to prison for longer sentence for getting, you know, having a uh, hundred hits of acid in your pocket than for second
2: degree murder. What's going on there? Yeah, so, so something is seriously amiss. Uh, in, um, in native cultures, these are always considered to be sacred plants and are only used in, in ritual uh, contexts. Right. Their use is supervised by the, the elders, by the, um, by the healers, of society they're often used to facilitate healing or to help the tribal group these compounds are never taken for recreational purposes they're only taken to solidify one's identity as part of the tribal group and to further the um the needs and survival of 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 the of the community yeah so it's a very very different model in in in, in you know in modern civilization we have the uh you know, we have rampant recreational drug and alcohol use, uh, you know, of, of, of all sorts. It's a, uh, you know, it's been a, you know, it, it's been a very really injurious process to, um to enormous numbers of people. We never, we didn't quite understand when these compounds hit the scene in the late 50s, early 60s, that they needed to be treated with special care. That attentiveness to set and setting was critical in regards to uh, outcome. That uh, intention was, uh, was highly important as well. So that when they were administered in a safe clinical setting uh, to uh, let's say a patient uh, by clinicians who knew exactly, who, who had strong ethical standards, who understood the range of effects of these compounds, who knew how to uh, optimally structure s- safe parameters. We found very positive outcomes and an extremely low incidence of adverse side effects. Right. Sidney Cohen and Rick Strassman did uh, st- studies Examining outcomes of uh, of formal research from the fifties to the early seventies, and found both of them found very very low incidence of 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 harm when. Uh, treatment sessions were optimally structured, but we have that in the world because information has not been adequately disseminated. Because very early on, these compounds developed a reputation for being recreational drugs associated with uh, young uh, people. We largely found
1: largely the Leary
2: Right. We had the 60 phenomenon. You know, people like Tim Leary, who actually did some very good work, who was quite a a brilliant, had a brilliant mind, quite an innovator. uh, Yet he, uh, I think he went off the rails somewhat, leading what he saw as a social movement. Right. I think uh, being in the limelight uh, had had an adverse effect, and it Mm -hmm. led to, let's say, an overpopularization. And a tr- even a trivialization uh, yeah. of, of, of of these drugs, which led to uh, potentially dangerous outcomes, and it also led for a a strong, angry counter response right. by the uh, by the authorities, who saw these compounds as uh, as threats to public health and even to uh, to cultural stability and cracked down very very harshly yeah. uh, unfortunately and a lot of people got caught up in that and uh, a lot of people were injured people were injured by taking these compounds in uncontrolled settings perhaps they had underlying vulnerabilities to begin with yeah. exacerbated huge, by the context that yeah. they took it in that yeah. that was uh quite problematic and then you also had the example you brought up of it generally very young people who got kind of caught up in the moment thought it was an exciting area to be involved in so an easy way to make some bucks and we do live in a capitalist system where entrepreneurship is often encouraged but in this case it was (laughs) uh, actively uh, punished uh, very very harshly. Still the case,
1: still the case I mean there are undercover cops at Grateful Dead shows, or where I guess it's fish or somebody now I don't right, know who's inherited right. the mantle, but you know putting undercover cops at a Grateful Dead show to bust kids selling mushrooms it i just that is such a Misallocation yeah. of resources. Well,
2: R- Richard Nixon called Timothy Leary public enemy number, number one. one. he, yeah. he became yeah. a very easy scapegoat. And Yet Elvis
1: sick. was his ally in the war against El- Elvis
2: drugs. Was, <laughs> yeah, you know, dr- drug addicted, yeah, exactly, uh, Elvis. For all his uh, wonderful musical talent, uh, yeah, really went off his rocker. Yeah. but he was uh, he got a big <laughs> badge from Richard Nixon that he could be uh, a narcotics officer. And, I, uh, I
1: I just have to tell I wish I wish the audience could see your office oh, yeah. because this is such a researcher's office it's here.
2: Packable, huh? <laughs> everything neat and
1: tidy. <laughs> that might be the way you see it, but yeah, I absolutely. see piles of research papers everywhere. But buried under the research papers behind you is the board game Candyland. Oh
2: yeah. Well, that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, that was my favorite game when I was five and six <laughs> years old. And it's still back there. And I will there. point out, they've changed it from them. Oh, really? The, the, yeah, the ice cream sandwich uh, card seems to have uh, disappeared. Uh,
1: well, I was, I was never Candyland I was a Candyland player. I went to shoot the ladder.
2: No, actually, I'm, uh, my, I, I'm I'm the chief of child and adolescent psychiatry here at Harvey oh, okay. UCLA. Right. And, uh, well, I, I, I rarely get on the floor myself these days. Uh, for a variety of reasons, including a bad knee, I I, I do provide a lot of supervision. <laughs> and uh, I, I will on occasion teach a resident, right. uh, ha, 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 a resident who grew hand? up on video games, <laughs> how, to, how to play one of the old standards, like uh, Candyland or right. Chips and Ladders. Let
1: me show you how it's done, <laughs> whippersnapper. So uh, what are, are you doing clinical work here now?
2: At, at, my, at my position? Yeah, here. Well, here it, I, I'm the division director of a large clinical operation we, we treat in our outpatient clinic upwards to 500 children and adolescents a year with a variety of mental health uh, issues okay. uh, we train um psychiatrists, psychiatry residents, child psychiatry fellows, psychology postdocs, psychology externs, social work interns. I have a large staff. We're also very active over in in our hospital, uh, providing consultative services to pediatrics. We also have an extremely busy psychiatric emergency room. In fact, we have one of the largest PSYCH-Rs in the country. I believe only in terms of patient flow, second only to bellevue hospital in new york where julie holland
1: you store do you know julie okay an old friend we probably there are probably like 20 people that we both know well yeah Yeah. yeah julie's wonderful uh I translated a chapter in her book about MDMA
2: Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um,
1: because I actually met Julie at uh, the – there was an ecstasy conference in Israel at the Dead Sea. Oh, I was I had, there. Well, Maybe that's, that's where, where we met. Okay, yeah, okay, right. I, I was Rick, and I had met like six months previously. Uh-huh. And it turned out there was a Spanish researcher there, uh-huh. and I was living in Barcelona, oh, yeah, so he right. Rick invited me to translate for right. well, uh, Jose Carlos. Carlos. Jose Carlos. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, very nice. Yeah, okay. okay I thought good. you you seem very you
1: familiar, go. but I also I was on the the Point episode uh, last week where uh-huh. you recorded right. I, the thing. I, saw that. Yeah, I yeah. put you in touch right. with the producer because right. I knew of your work. Um, so I thought maybe I, I was just recognizing you from the video, <laughs> right. but it, yeah, okay. Yeah. So we were both at the right. Dead Sea High, where I made the mistake of shaving before going swimming oh, in the, oh, Dead right. sea. the Dead Sea. That was I a nice move. Content. Yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah. That was fun. So that's where I met Julie.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I met Julie at my FDA hearing in 1992 when I applied for permission to conduct a, uh, the first. Uh, Clinical MDMA study in human subjects. And uh, Julie was a medical student at Mount Sinai, I think. Uh And uh, and I, that's where, actually, I met her. She was a friend of Rick's. And Rick and I were sharing a hotel room. And as before we went to bed, Rick said, Oh, don't be surprised if when you wake up, there's a someone else here when i got up in the morning <laughs> there was this very pretty little girl uh, you know young woman <laughs> sleeping on the floor in a sleeping bag hotel <laughs> that's how i met julie holland who, a, who has now done some wonderful writing yeah and, uh, she's uh, wonderful and wonderful uh, spokesman and as uh, as beautiful as ever
1: so let's plug julie so she wrote uh, her latest books about marijuana i believe
2: I believe so. Uh, I
1: don't remember what it's called though. God, man, the the, the I don't know. something. Well, anyway, look up Julie Holland on Amazon dot com. Right. Then she did the the previous book that I translated. The chapter for was uh, the the ecstasy book the ecstasy or handbook or, or, or yeah. the guy MDMA yeah, yeah. guide or something like she that.
2: Has an, I, she I did an interview with her that she put in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, she's she's great. She's in New York, private practice, right, and right. Sh- and she did her book. Well, yeah, Weekends at Bellevue. Right, that was right, a right. sort That's of a very, memoir.
2: Uh, her experience in the Bellevue psychiatric emergency yeah, room. Yeah,
1: yeah, that was that was very entertaining. So Julie Holland. Okay. So we were both in Israel at the Dead Sea Hyatt. That to me, you know, in Spain, Spain is kind of like being in high school because everyone takes a big break in the summer. Uh-huh. And then in September, everyone comes right. back. Okay. And so what did you do over the summer? Right. You know, right. and, uh, that year, I, I think I won the lottery because, you know, everyone like, Oh, I went here. I went there. I did that. Well, I went to an ecstasy conference <laughs> in Israel. I that just. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely won won everything so what was you you mentioned that you were um doing uh a study in mdma what what was that about the mdma by the way for people who don't yeah. know is also known as ecstasy
2: right it's well, not
1: strictly speaking a hallucinogen no correct?
2: no it's 3-4-methylene doxy methamphetamine structurally it's a kind of has similarities to both mescaline which is a hallucinogen and uh, an amphetamine. Uh-huh. So it has uh, a strong amphetamine quality uh, but it ha- it's a very, uh, dis- it's described as a very empathogenic,
1: empathogenic drug yeah. so
2: individuals have these very strong bonding experiences, they develop a, uh, a strong facility to articulate feelings, mm-hmm. very valuable for people who may be alexithymic or without words for feelings oh,
1: really? and then
2: it was thought at one point to be a potentially valuable adjunct for psychotherapy
1: and proved itself to well, be, no? Well,
2: somewhat. I mean, uh, basically the history was it was, you know, while it was synthesized uh, right before the First World War by Merck in Germany, it was really put on the shelf, not looked at again uh, briefly in the 50s when the military was conducting their uh, Uh, their studies of a variety of psychoactive compounds and then was forgotten again and not looked at or even appreciated for its range of effects until Alexander Shulgin a a prominent uh, Bay Area uh, uh, pharmacologist synthesized it and his model was when he synthesized a new drug he'd take it himself.
1: And uh, with his friends out at the ranch. a special
2: group of friends and he found, he thought it had um, potential as a therapeutic adjunct, and he introduced the drug to a number of psychotherapists who who he was friends with. And for a while, from the late 70s to the early mid-80s, it was uh, actively used as part of an underground psychotherapy, particularly in California. Then in the mid-80s, it became popular as a recreational so-called dance drug. Uh, It was marketed uh, to a a young dance culture population. Um, Initially, the name MDMA was marketed as in the underground. The, 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 uh, The entrepreneur who thought it would be popular to people going to these dances thought he would name it after its most salient psychological feature, which was empathy. But he found in the real world, empathy didn't sell. So he took it back to the drawing <laughs> empathy room and, sell. And, and decided to name it ecstasy. Uh-huh, Even though worked. it's less accurate, a yeah. uh, descriptor of the subjective experience in empathy, it was far more popular as a saleable commodity. Yeah. So it became very popular among young people and uh, you know, inevitably... Uh, uh, some young people got into some, had some serious health issues. There were some fatalities, particularly from an overheating phenomenon, right. which would be exacerbated by taking it in a context of vigorous exercise like dancing, poor poor ventilation, uh, lack of hydration, so there there were some fatalities. There was also a neurotoxicity controversy, which eventually petered out because by and large the 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 research backing it up was seriously flawed at Johns Hopkins. Uh, some of that was at Hopkins. Was it Ricard Ricarte?
1: Ricarte. Yeah. Right. And he used amphetamines actually. Well, that was a whole MDMA. other story.
2: Right. That the neurotoxicity the uh, the the preclinical research neurotoxicity group uh, administered what they said was MDMA to, to monkeys, and of course yeah. I had, I think there are ethical issues about using monkeys for these experiments in any event, but they would administer massive dosages to the monkeys. They sacrificed the monkeys, looked at their brains, and found, oh, my God, in addition to changes in the serotonin neurotransmitter system, which they had earlier called serotonergic neurotoxicity, even though, again, even calling it that was debatable, they also found dopamine changes, dopaminergic, they called it dopaminergic neurotoxicity. And they essentially predicted that all of these young ravers, dance goers who like to take so-called ecstasy were setting themselves up to develop Parkinson's in 20 years. This was published in Science, front page, the leading periodical, in the sciences, in the world, front page news and newspapers around the world that uh, MDMA will cause Parkinson's disease. And then a year later, in a back page of of science, there was a very tiny little (laughs) little paragraph that said, retraction. Whoops! It wasn't really uh, MDMA we gave the monkeys. It turned out to be methamphetamine. And how that came to be the case I have no idea but it's just an example of how seriously flawed much of that research was so I think that issue has faded away there are some very real dangers with ecstasy not the least of which is you have no idea what you're taking when you take ecstasy there's so much unreliability with drug substitution you don't know what it in, is in this country in spain where where right. i live
1: normally right. there are people in clubs with mobile labs that'll test right. test right. the and stuff you had before the you buy Dance it
2: safe uh, phenomena here uh, years ago is that
1: legal here or how, what what's well, the status uh, of that
2: it's you know i i I, th- I haven't heard that much about drug testing going on at these events in fact i mean i'm you know, I'm aging on. I'm not aware of a lot of what's going on among young people, but I I don't hear as much about so-called raves right. or mass events where kids will. Dance into yeah. the wee hours, about like taking Burning
1: taking, Man. Or I wonder if Burning Man testing is something else, labs Although I
2: would, I would caution people about taking MDMA in a very, very hot climate where you <laughs> may have <laughs> yeah. serious yeah. limitations on water. Right, that could be very dangerous. Right. So I'd be very cautious. Even about if you, that. know, I
1: mean, I I, f- I speak in medical school sometimes, and and uh, I've often talked about drugs. And one of the main questions I get, I'm sure you've received it a million times, is Is MDMA dangerous or not? Right, and and uh, my answer is exactly what you just said. First, you don't know if it is MDMA. That's a whole. If it is, then that's a conversation. But what you're getting in a club, who knows what it is? Right, you don't know. And a lot of times, what they're mixing into it is right. really nasty stuff right
2: and you know many there have been a number of um, malignant hyperthermia deaths uh, attributed to so-called ecstasy where your temperature right. can just you know, shoot up to a hundred five hundred six degrees Fahrenheit lead to kidney failure liver failure seizures and death and there there are not that many of those cases but each and every one is is horrible tragedy and preventable and, and, and Extra, extraordinarily regrettable but um uh um i forgot where i was going with that oh like well, the mdma that. if we can cut everything <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> too much I mdma lost my train of thought um, Where was i going
1: yeah you that? were saying that uh, you know there there are these uh, deaths from uh, hypo, hypo,
2: hyperthermia. hyperthermia yeah so what what we yeah so may, there there've been a number of deaths uh, attributed to ecstasy, hyperthermic deaths it turned out, the drug turned out not to be MDMA but rather uh, another drug uh, 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 paramethoxyamphetamine or PMA, uh, considered to perhaps be the most potent amphetamine known, (laughs) so it gets, you know you know, people are aware that a kid took ecstasy, right. the kid had a, a fatal outcome, it's presumed to be MDMA, but with a number of these deaths, it was not MDMA, it was PMA, right. which is an entirely different compound.
1: So what do you think is uh, the, the therapeutic potential for MDMA? Do you think it's significant?
2: Well, I, you know, <laughs> over the last uh, five or six years, there have been some very interesting research going on in Charleston, South Carolina, by a, a psychiatrist named Michael for working together with MAPS, they've developed a a protocol treating individuals with chronic refractory. Refractory means it hasn't responded to treatment. So chronic refractory uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, and they're finding – you know, very impressive results in regards to uh, the amelioration of the of the PTSD yeah. symptoms that do seem to sustain over time. They're expanding their study. They're developing a, a new uh, wing for the study in Boulder, Colorado. I believe they're also trying to establish something in Vancouver, Canada, as well as in Israel. So I, I think uh, Mike Mithofer and his group uh, have uh, made a strong case that... Uh, that MDMA, when taken under optimal conditions with with with, uh, with uh, good preparation, um, uh, screening out vulnerable individuals, taking it in an ideal setting with proper attention to safety parameters, they find efficacious outcome and safe outcome. And this is a very important precedent to establish because MDMA may very well have some potential when utilized in a therapeutic capacity, and, and as uh, you
1: said, those are the toughest patients that they're working with. these are patients right. who haven't responded to right. any other protocol exactly
2: and pt chronic PTSD could be an incapacitating <sighs> yeah, condition the and they're end, getting yeah. very impressive results. I was again important to point out that that Mithofer went through all of the federal state and local regulatory sure. agencies and committees sure. he had uh, he had stamps of approval from every conceivable authority it allowed him to get a drug that was 99.99% pure uh he could set up his uh his study you know it, you know not in a clandestine fashion but but sure but openly this is optimize yeah. optimized safety and he's had very safe outcomes and he's getting good results so i think yeah. this is something that potentially might be built on
1: this is the the work that my friend jose carlos was doing right that yeah. led me right. to, to israel right. he
2: did actually the earliest study using mdma to treat ptsd i think he was specifically working with women who had been sexual assault victims yeah exactly found some initial positive results and then there was some uh, uh, contentious press yeah. <laughs> in Spain that spooked the government authorities who then rapidly shut it, shut down. it down. So Jose Carlos only yeah. studied a few subjects before he was uh, rudely and summarily shut down.
1: That was terrible because as as with the other people you're talking about, he had gone through every – jumped through every hoop, had all, everything stamped, all the approval. Right. But as soon as he did that interview in El Pais, right. it was over. Right. But yeah. I
2: think things are now more open now. I think the um, uh, we have a much better understanding of the range of effects of the drug. The concerns that even one dose of MDMA could cause permanent brain damage, I think those concerns have been dispensed with. The research that was the basis for that, I think, is uh, perceived as uh, – as uh, problematic, as flawed, and uh, I think there's a better understanding of how this compound might be judiciously utilized in uh, in, in, in an approved context with uh, with qualified uh, uh, clinicians in in a in particular patient populations.
1: Is it true that? By the way, did you ever meet um, Albert Hoffman? Oh, sure. The, yeah? Sure. Oh, no, were you I... at his 100th birthday party? Yes, I was. <gasps> oh, yeah. I, Kat, my wife and I were invited to yeah. the party by Stanley. Who, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, we had a family thing come up, and we couldn't go. And it's I'll regret exploring. that for the rest of my life. Yeah,
2: and it's, uh, you know, there was a big conference held. By the way, this the is the inventor
1: of LSD, yeah, a Swiss yeah, yeah, gentleman. 19th,
2: April 19th, 1943, the first LSD experiment on himself, inadvertently. The, the great bicycle ride. He was a brilliant man. Uh, and had remarkable insights. Uh, and I, I, I actually, I, I did an inter- uh, an interview with him in '96. That maps published. That's online. Uh-huh. Uh, the-
1: Maps.org, uh, Multidisciplinary maps.org. Association yeah, yeah. of Psychedelic Studies. We, we keep mentioning that. So Albert
2: Hoffman was an extraordinary individual, yeah. and uh, for his hundredth birthday, a uh, big conference was held in his honor in Basel. And in front of a thousand people, he got on stage, and for almost an hour. Extemporaneously gave the most dazzling speech lecture you could imagine. At 100 years old, he was perfectly intact. I heard he for, was dancing at the party. Except for two hip replacements and a knee replacement, <laughs> he was doing just great. His central nervous system was, uh, uh, no was A there, OK. Huh? So yeah. Hoffman was uh, one of the great men of the 20th century. I don't think adequately will be adequately appreciated until some more time passes. But yeah. he was a, a true visionary. And, you know, he not only. Uh, was the first one to discover uh, LSD Uh, he was also the first medicinal chemist to actually isolate psilocybin as the active alkaloid in hallucinogenic mushrooms. Ah. When R. Gordon Wasson first uh, you know it was not believed that hallucinogenic mushrooms even existed in by the mid50s it was thought to be myth or perhaps some confusion with peyote uh-huh. and then wasson who was a uh, an insurance uh, wall executive. Street banker he was the oh, f- a banker. vice president okay. I think at JP Morgan right he married a, a Russian woman, right. who loved mushrooms, and they got into <laughs> right. this whole thing about yeah. mushrooms and world culture. And then he heard from a a friend, Robert Graves, the great uh, British scholar and writer, that there might be an extant uh, mushroom cult among the indigenous people in the central highlands of Mexico. In Oaxaca, So, right? Wasson yeah. organized an expedition, which is very, you know, using what you know jeeps and then mules to get in this totally remote area it was it was introduced to a, a a mexican uh healer who used mushrooms maria sabina, maria sabina and she invited him to attend a a velada or a healing ceremony and then uh which was written up uh, Lawson wrote up his experiences in that uh that pre-eminent, uh, Medical uh, cool. journal, Life Magazine, <laughs> and was published uh, May thirteenth, nineteen fifty-seven. But had it was yeah. a great story. Had great pictures. Yeah, and, uh, and Timothy Leary. Timothy read Leary that. read yeah. that. And it led to his first psychedelic experience. But yeah. Wasson returned from Mexico with samples of the mushroom that Maria Sabina had given him. He sent them to the leading medicinal chemists around the world to discover what the active chemical was. None of the chemists could isolate the active alkaloids until Hoffman took a crack at it. So another Mm, accomplishment of Albert Hoffman was that he was the first one to isolate psilocybin and then psilocybin. From 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 mushrooms.
1: The LSD discovery was by accident, right? That was
2: total serendipity. Yeah, total he accident. was
1: working with uh, with Ar- Argo.
2: ergot. Ergot. He, in '39, he developed a number of uh, analogs of, of ergot. Uh, he was looking for uh, ergot,
1: by the way, which is a, a mold that grows on rye. Is that correct? Right, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that may have actually have been involved in the ancient Greek rites of Eleusis, the right? It's a ceremonial sacrament. The Kikikion. May uh, uh, Hoffman and Watson and others theorize that it may have been a a fungus growing on a Claviceps fungus growing on the rye plant, and, and
1: also associated with um, the witch burnings and the, the what was it Possibly. called? The, the freakouts, the occasional freakouts. There was yeah. some. I right. read somewhere somebody had studied the rain patterns and uh-huh. found that the rye that was in storage was more likely to have been growing. In Massachusetts? No, in in, in medieval Europe. Oh, in Europe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, there were
2: claviceps infestations of grain that uh, there was one condition caused by claviceps (sighs) that St. Vitus dance. St. Vitus dance. I think it was called where individuals would become delirious and Danced yeah. and it was, a vag- <laughs> it was a vasoconstrictive compound, meaning it caused intense constriction of blood vessels to the point where they would become gangrenous and would. Uh, you see the old etchings of Saint Vitus dance. You see the townspeople dancing around, crave some of them ripping off the arms of others. So really? it's a different claviceps than the claviceps perhaps involved uh-huh. with uh, lysergamides. Yeah, but uh, but but Hoffman was interested in in this. Uh, in this compound he was looking for a new uh drug that could cause vasoconstriction or perhaps Uh uterine constriction he isolated a series of lysergamine he named they're all lsd one two three all the way up lsd 25 was uh one of those that he isolated in 39 he put it up on the shelf and didn't do anything with it until 43 1943 when he says he had what he called a presentiment that was his term presentiment that he ought to go back and look at that 25th compound in the series so he synthesized some more kind of, just kind of you know just kind of working with it in the lab but he had a cut on his hand and uh, oh, presumably wow. some of the uh, compound got through the cut and into his blood system and activated his central nervous system and on the way home from the lab he realized he was having a very very unusual on experience bicycle, right? on his bicycle yeah. on his bicycle the famous april 19th bicycle <laughs> trip or was it april 16th I think april april april, <laughs> april. So, no on april 16th he had this accident april 19th he measured out what he considered to be a minuscule dose. Oh, that's dose, right. To, to confirm 250 it. micrograms, which he thought would be completely inactive. <laughs> but you got to start with a low dose. And that's but, like double. Well, LSD has incredible potency. Yeah, so, yeah. 250 mics so they're very powerful. Uh, dose so uh, and his, but that so April 19th was a bike ride going home by the time he got home he told his wife to call the doctor because he felt he was going crazy uh, he was having very weird oh, so he made it home he made it home I always but, thought he crashed oh, no, in a field no, of flowers oh, no, no, somewhere no no no, no, no. he okay. made it home got into bed and said I'm dying oh. something's horrible is happening Free. call the doctor right but by the time the doctor got there he was in a he was he, he was ex, he was in an ecstatic reverie he was having beautiful <laughs> you know the hallucinations the visual phenomena had gone from dark and horrible and uh, oppressive to bright and beautiful and he stopped uh, transformative. He opened up yeah, to the experience yeah. and thought, "Wow, do I have something here?" <laughs> So he worked <laughs> yeah. for Sandoz. He introduced this to uh, so, uh, psychiatric researchers at Sandoz, who initially sent the compound around to investig- psychiatric investigators, uh, suggesting that they try it on themselves because it was a psychotomimetic exactly. drug that could induce psychosis. So they could have a many-hour psychotic experience and therefore learn more about the inner experience of their patients. Which this I have to say, I,
1: I, I find that very beautiful, uh, yeah. you know, and very um, reminiscent of shamanism. Yeah. Because, you know, in shamanism, as, as sure. you know, I'm sure, it's the shaman who generally takes the drugs. That's right.
2: Sometimes a patient doesn't take the drug at all. It's right. the shaman you know, having the visionary experience, and in that experience, learning about what ails, what what the diagnosis is, and right. what ought to be done to treat that. Yeah, patient.
1: To, to go between the right. worlds and, and yeah. Find, yeah. Yeah.
2: So here's a psychotomimetic drug. They suggested the doctors take it. Yeah. Uh, after that, a psychiatrist in England in the early fifties named Sanderson started to administer low dosages. Uh, to uh, uh, patients. And the, the prevailing treatment model in those days was psychoanalysis. He found that the psycholytic model of low-dose administration would loosen up thinking of patients and allow them to more ably, freely associate, and uh, engage in in their issues that had brought them into treatment and many of them felt afterwards they felt a tremendous relief and a diminution of their problematic symptoms Uh, later on in the US uh, psychiatrists here in the US we always go for more the bigger the better so they started to administer much higher dosages and created the psychedelic model and found it more effective in serious uh, mental illness including let's say uh, serious uh, alcoholism and drug addiction, obsessive compulsive disorder, found that, especially with the alcoholism, that it was uh, remarkably effective. Interestingly, particularly in individuals who had during the course of their one, often just one session, a powerful psycho-spiritual or let's say mystico-mimetic epiphany. Uh So So individuals who had an experience approximating a religious experience seemed to be the ones who had the best outcomes in terms of uh, establishing and maintaining sobriety over time.
1: Have you done any work, um, the- therapeutic
2: or, or research, with ibogaine? Um, I haven't studied it. it there's been some. There's been some interest in, in looking at ibogaine as a treatment for drug addiction. A, uh, a an ex. Addict named Howard Lotsoff really popularized this, and until he passed away a couple of years ago, really devoted the last thirty years of his life to trying to organize um, research in this area. It's been slow going. There, are, there are some safety issues with ibogaine. Uh, there, there are some powerful effects on cerebellar function and balance, which I th- need to be looked at. There have also It can be cardiotoxic at higher dose. So I think Mm. this is a drug one needs to approach uh, very carefully. And it's my personal sense that other uh, psychedelics, classic psychedelics, particularly psilocybin, may have a much safer profile both medically and psychologically Mm. and may have... um, you know, equal, ultimately, equal efficacy if we're ever allowed to test these models out. Right? Is it true? I, I've, I've got a vague sense. I,
1: I, I, this may not be true, but is. It true that the advent of, uh, of psychedelics in the late 50s, early 60s led directly to the understanding of the, ser- the neurotransmission sure. Absolutely.
2: System. Absolutely. Yeah. Work in the late 50s. Um, I think a lot of it was done in sh- University of Chicago with Daniel X. Friedman, very, very prominent a psychiatrist, neuroscientist, the chairman at Chicago, later Professor Emeritus at UCLA. Um, his group and other groups noted that when they, they tagged the LSD molecule with a with a radioactive isotope, um, and it, it injected it into their animal models, and then took uh, took images, took pictures of the brain. They found that the parts of the brain that lit up turned out to be the serotonergic neurotransmitter system. So essentially, the discovery of the serotonergic system came from early uh, LSD studies. In fact, mm-hmm. towards the end of his life, Daniel X. Friedman lamented the fact that this remarkable compound, this uh, wonderful research tool, had been lost to research because of the cultural upheaval and the political reaction to it.
1: Who Was it Terrence McKenna who said uh, psychiatric research without hallucinogens is like biology without a microscope?
2: I don't know if he quite said that. <laughs> <laughs> I't Terence, not, Dennis. not De- Dennis. Dennis
1: is more guarded, of course. And
2: oh, Dennis is a, one of my best friends.
1: <laughs> no, wonderful guy. That's yeah, yeah, what I'm yeah. saying. He he would be less uh, hyperbolic. Dennis is more circumspect,
2: so what might tell so I will also say that uh, number number one, some uh, Dennis tells me that some of Terence's best ideas were actually Dennis's <laughs> ideas originally. And I also want to plug my good friend Dennis McKenna's new book, yeah. his memoir, which is fantastic. Uh, one might not realize Dennis is a gifted writer, and he's Got a great story to tell. So he's written a book. It's called The, the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss mm. My Life with Terrence McKenna by his little brother, Dennis McKenna. A yeah. wonderful picture on the cover of the two when they were kids. Uh, Dennis was about four, Terrence was about eight, looking out over the edge of, of a canyon. Would, Dennis with his little binoculars and Terrence looming above him, resting his chin on the top of Dennis's head. It's uh, a beautiful Beautiful picture and a wonderful book. So I'd, I'd certainly plug that.
1: Good, good. Well done. Um, listen, I know you've got to get home. It's been a long day. Is uh, is there anything? What about? Do you have any books you you want to plug? Uh, no, or, I can plug. Plug away. Plug away. So one
2: book is um, Hallucinogens, a Reader, uh, published by uh, Putnam Tarcher. Uh, copyright 2002. And is this uh, an academic uh, well, it's a, survey, it's a, it's a, or what's it's? It's, um, it's got a number of, of my own academic articles. Mm-hmm. I've got uh, besides the intro, uh, and my interview with Albert Hoffman is in there. Oh, I also great. have three articles. One is uh, a history of psychiatric research with hallucinogens. Another is on the um, uh, psychology of ayahuasca. And, and, and the final is uh, deconstructing ecstasy, the politics of MDMA research. Beyond that, I have uh, articles. Uh, more for uh, you know, written for a popular audience, written by people such like as Ralph Metzner and Rick Strasman, Stan Groff, Myron Stolaroff, who passed away just a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, Sasha and Ann Shulgin. Speaking of Sasha Shulgin, uh, I know Sasha's uh, at home
1: getting home care, and uh, I remember there was a Drive to raise some money right, yeah, to help out it, with that. Yeah, it,
2: Sasha is quite ill. Yeah. Uh, so is Anne. They Sasha, some, by the
1: way, who, who, the, the, who reinvented rem, MDMA. Remarkable
2: uh, pharmacologist yeah. who really rediscovered Wonderful MDMA guy. and kind of discovered that it had a therapeutic application. He's, he's seriously ailing at this point. They have some... Uh, financial issues and uh, they're 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 quite open to accepting donations and gifts and they, they could be contacted through the Erowid website I would say Erowid, yeah. Erowid, yeah E-R-O-W-I-D.org. also a Good. wonderful website in and of itself in regards <laughs> to a huge font of information uh, tremendous infor- bank vault of information yeah. 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 and has
1: been for years yeah. i remember yeah. consulting that 15 years right. ago no, probably no, those it's guys
2: have done a great unbelievable. job
1: unbelievable yeah yeah,
2: yeah. And um, so my other book I'll mention, Higher Wisdom, Eminent Elders Explore the Continuing Impact of Psychedelics. It's a book of interviews I, I co-edited with Roger Walsh, who's a professor yeah, of psychiatry I know Roger at UC Walsh. Irvine.
1: Yeah. yeah, I know his work. Yeah. I don't so, think so, I've so met him personally. So we personally. interviewed
2: many of the, of the luminaries. He wrote a
1: book about shamanism, didn't he? Yes, he the did. shaman's yes. doorway or yeah. something like that. Something it was a very like good that. book. You know, yeah.
2: Roger's a good friend, old friend. Yeah. Roger... Um, Roger also had a big impact on my going into this field. Um, you know, when I left Johns Hopkins in the late '80s and went out to uh, UC Irvine, I was somewhat disillusioned with the uh, contemporary state of psychiatry. And I met Roger. We went out for lunch one day, and I was telling him about some of my disillusionment. So he said, "Well, Charlie, what if you could do anything in the world? What what is what is it that you would want to do?" And I said, "I know exactly what I would like to do, but I don't think it's possible." So well, what is it? He said. I'd love to study psychedelics. They're so fascinating. Like I told my reason. dad at 3 a.m. XYZ. But it's not. <laughs> this is 1987. I'm having this conversation. Mm. And, and he was a senior professor. I was just a, a, an assistant professor at that point. And he said, well, you know, I think there really is something to what you say. I entirely agree with you. This research should be done. And you, sh- you should feel empowered to start writing. Which I did with, along with a friend of mine, and with Roger, we uh, you know we wrote a few articles and started to put together our first protocol. So it kind of came together Fantastic. as a team effort, and uh, and certainly Roger's uh, encouragement was a big um, uh, factor in, in getting this whole process going.
1: Yeah. Listen, thank you so sure. much for doing this. I think uh, you're doing some of the most important work being done anywhere really I, I believe that I've believed that for you know 20 years since I first got involved with maps and, and started writing for them and doing whatever I could do to, to help out and uh, uh, I, I think people will look back on this period and be amazed at at how difficult it was and how courageous people like you were.
2: Well, finally, things are getting off the ground. I think a, a whole new era is opening up. I think there really is a, a very positive future for research with psychedelics, and uh, I think we're 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 just at the beginning ready to launch this. Uh, To learn more about what's on the horizon, check out the Hefter website and also the MAPS website and I think there's important information and for me personally, it's been, uh, you know, I feel blessed that I had the opportunity to to work in this area and working with patients who had terminal cancer, who were close to death and who derive such benefit from their one psilocybin session, um that i sat with for them was uh f- for me it, it was a gift to have to share that experience with them and to be inspired by them these are some of the most courageous uh, uh, and strong individuals i've ever come in contact with and uh and again, I think uh, I think there's a lot we can do with these compounds. Uh, modern psychiatry is very helpful in a lot of respects, but it does fall short. And I think this is a research model that needs to be looked at very seriously and uh, is rich with potential. And after many decades of quiescence because of the turmoil and upheaval of the 60s, our culture is finally at the point where I believe we can maturely and responsibly re-examine the potential of these compounds to help the human condition. Fantastic. Thank you, Chris.
1: Dr. Charles Grove, modern-day shaman. <laughs> Good talking with you. You too.
0: He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you ever and ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die when We'll dance into the ground